boat slain. Here, master, what cheer? Act one, scene one, the tempest. I do so, I confess it. Ah, sirrah, a body would think this was well counterfeited. I pray you tell your brother how well I counterfeited. Hey ho, act four, scene two, as you like it. Begun to tell me what I am, but stopped and left me to a bootless inquisition, concluding stay, not yet. Act one, scene two, the tempest. Did you hear that? Listen closely. According to some, these quotes from Shakespearean works all have one thing in common. They're proof that Shakespeare didn't write them. That's right, William Shakespeare may not have been the true author of the plays. Welcome to Something Out of Nothing, a podcast in the Math 1111 cryptography series. God has given you one face, and you make yourself another. Act 3, Scene 1, Hamlet. How could anyone possibly believe that William Shakespeare didn't write the works of William Shakespeare? As it turns out, there are entire groups of scholars dedicated to proving that Shakespeare wasn't actually the author of the plays. There are many reasons why the authorship of the Shakespearean plays is questioned. Firstly, despite a vast number of searches that have been conducted over the years, no one has ever found a single surviving letter written by Shakespeare. No one has ever been able to find a book that he owned either. Shakespeare's three daughters were illiterate as well. This leaves many scholars to believe that Shakespeare himself, the actor from Stratford, that is, was in fact illiterate. If he was, it would be nearly impossible, and highly improbable, that he would have been the author of the plays and sonnets attributed to his name. Additionally, the material covered in the Shakespearean plays conveys a deep knowledge of the inner workings of the government, various legal terms, foreign languages, music, and aristocratic mannerisms. It is highly unlikely that a potentially illiterate actor from Stratford would have had this type of knowledge without being at least somewhat entangled in politics. However, if Shakespeare were involved in politics, there would have been records of his interactions. There are no such records. Although there are many scholars who agree that Shakespeare was not the author of the plays, there are many different theories as to who the true Shakespeare was. For this podcast, I'll be focusing on the Baconians, those who agree that Francis Bacon was the true Shakespeare. These people aren't just random conspiracy theorists either. Some famous Baconians include Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, and Sigmund Freud, among others. Sir Francis Bacon was an aristocrat who had a great deal of experience with the inner workings of court. He attended Trinity College, where he learned much about law, and he was a member of the House of Commons during Queen Elizabeth's reign. During his youth, he had gone abroad in France, and he knew many different languages. In other words, Sir Francis Bacon had all of the qualifications that the actor from Stratford lacked. Still, all of this could be chalked up to coincidence. By far the most convincing evidence that Bacon wrote the plays lies in his De Augmentis Scientarum, in which he describes a cipher that he invented in his youth, what is referred to as the biliteral cipher. It has also come to be referred to as the Baconian cipher. According to some, the first folio of Shakespeare's works contains secret messages enciphered using the Baconian cipher, among others, that prove that Bacon wrote the works formerly attributed to Shakespeare. The first folio was published in 1623. It was supposedly a posthumous publication. However, Francis Bacon did not die until 1626. It is entirely possible that Bacon could have had a hand in its creation, 
hiding his name within his words in order to someday be discovered. Stars, hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. Act 1, Scene 4, Macbeth. Bacon's cipher is relatively easy to understand, although it is more complicated to use. The cipher is a simple substitution cipher, meaning that each letter in the plain text corresponds to one letter, or in this case, one group of letters in the cipher text. To clarify, the plain text is the message that you want to encipher, and the cipher text is the message after it has been enciphered. Each letter of the alphabet is represented by a group of five letters, made up of only A's and B's. For example, the letter A becomes A-A-A-A-A, the letter B becomes A-A-A-A-B, and the letter C becomes A-A-A-B-A, and so on. This cipher on its own is exceedingly easy to crack using frequency analysis. Frequency analysis involves analyzing how often each particular string of letters is used and comparing that to the frequencies of letters occurring in the English alphabet. So, in other words, if AABAA shows up the most often, it is likely that it would correspond to the most common letter in the English language, the letter E. If this were all that there was to the Baconian cipher, the messages would not be very secure. This is where Bacon's true genius shines through. In his De Augmentis Scientarum, the same book in which he first published the biliteral cipher, Bacon says that one of the keys to a good cipher was, if it be possible, that they may be managed without suspicion. The key to the security of the Baconian cipher is that it is a combination of cryptography and steganography. Steganography is the process of hiding secret messages in not-so-secret text. For example, a message using Bacon's cipher would be extremely obvious if all it contained was a long string of A's and B's. No, Bacon's true ingenuity lies in his method of hiding the fact that there is a message enciphered at all. Instead of a string of A's and B's, the Baconian cipher uses an A font and a B font to encipher a message within something that would seem innocuous at first glance. The A and B fonts can be anything, so long as they are two distinctly different types. Allow me to provide an example. So, let's say that we want to encipher the message Shakespeare. We would first come up with a message that is five times the length of our plain text, since each letter in the plain text will be represented by a string of five A's and B's. For the word Shakespeare, we would need a message that is 50 letters long. A message that would work is, this is a perfectly normal message that I am sending friends. Now we would take the first letter that we wish to encipher, in this case, the S in Shakespeare. S in the Baconian cipher is represented by the letters B, A, 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 B. Let's say that our A font is a normal typeface, but our B font is italicized. So, we would take the first five letters of the innocuous message. That would be the word this and the letter I of is, and we write them in the corresponding font. The T in this and the I in is are in the B font and therefore would be italicized. Thus, the first five letters of the message would be written in italics, plain, 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 italics. We would continue to do this for each letter in Shakespeare, which would be an incredibly time-consuming process. However, should the message be intercepted, it would not appear to be suspicious at first glance. Only someone who knows what to look for the message in the first place would notice the difference in fonts. This isn't only restricted to different fonts, either. If you replace the A's and B's, or the A fonts and the B fonts, with ones and zeros, 
you will find that this cipher bears a remarkable resemblance to binary. In fact, Bacon's biliteral cipher was the precursor to modern binary. Long before computers or even the telegraph, Bacon had invented a system of communication that was built perfectly for technology. For scene two, Twelfth Night. Over the years, many have attempted to prove and disprove the existence of the Baconian cipher. Elizabeth Wells Gallup was a teacher and later a high school principal in Michigan in the late 1800s. She was among the first to posit that there were hidden messages in the first folio and other works by Shakespeare, encrypted using the biliteral cipher. Along with her sister, Kitty Wells, she spent months analyzing the various works of Shakespeare for hidden messages. Gallup not only claimed to discover that Bacon was Shakespeare, but also that he wrote the works of other famous authors of the time, such as Spencer, Peel, Marlowe, and Green. Apparently, the ciphers also revealed that Sir Francis Bacon was actually the son of Queen Elizabeth and the rightful heir to the throne. William Friedman and his wife Elizabeth Friedman were the first to disprove Gallup's methods. William Friedman was an expert cryptanalyst. He taught courses in cryptanalysts to army officials, wrote training manuals on cryptography, was chief of the SIS Signal Corps, which was in charge of cryptanalysis in the army, and he cracked the Japanese cipher purple during World War II. He and his wife, Elizabeth, disproved Gallup on the basis that her methods were inconsistent at best. Only she seemed to be able to identify which fonts were A fonts and which fonts were B fonts. In other words, they argued that she found what she was determined to find. That seemed to be the end of the discussion of the Baconian cipher in Shakespeare's works for a while. After all, the Freedmans were clearly leaders in the field of cryptography, and they were correct that Gallup's methods were inconsistent. Then, in 1987, Penn Leary, a trial lawyer from Omaha, Nebraska, published a new book on the Baconian cipher, The Cryptographic Shakespeare. In it, he attempted to remedy the problems of inconsistency within Gallup's methods by using computer programs and algorithms that helped automate the process. He also did not stick strictly to the biliteral cipher, instead applying a shift-4 cipher as well. Leary claims that the cipher is based on a 21-letter alphabet instead of a 26-letter alphabet, because in the Elizabethan era, I and J and U and V were often used interchangeably, and W was often written as two Vs in a row. He also accounted for different spellings of bacon, such as B-E-C-E-N or B-I-K-I-N, because, once again, during the Elizabethan era, spellings were not standardized. If it was pronounced the same way, then it was the same word. Leary identified hundreds of examples where Bacon essentially signed his name on the works of Shakespeare, although he did not claim, as Gallup did, that Bacon was the rightful heir to the throne. He found the words Bacon, Cipher, and Name hidden within the text multiple times. There are those who would question Leary's findings. One such man is Terry Ross, a program manager for e-learning at the University of Baltimore. Ross applied Leary's methods to multiple other works and found that, using Leary's system, even Tarzan was written by Sir Francis Bacon. In fact, he has a list of over 700 words that could encipher the word Bacon using Leary's Baconian methods. For example, the words counterfeit, intrusion, and affirmatives all work out to Bacon, according to Leary's model. Leary does respond to Ross's accusations, saying that it is important to look at the source of the information. Essentially, he argues that Shakespeare's first folio is a suspicious source, whereas Tarzan is irrelevant to the matter at hand. 
He argues that it is unlikely that the name Bacon would appear as many hundreds of times as it does in Shakespeare's works by sheer coincidence. As Sir Bacon himself said, for what a man had rather was true, he more readily believes. This can be applied to both sides. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Act two, scene two, Romeo and Juliet. So, did Francis Bacon write the plays? Are the ciphers really there, or just a coincidence? Will we ever know the answer? Was Bacon the real Shakespeare? We may never know the truth about the author, but his works will never cease to have the literary impact that makes them, in a word, timeless. This podcast would not have been possible without the help of Davis Cruz, Jason Yang, and Reese Phillips. Be sure to listen to more of the Math 1111 Cryptography podcasts, describing the various ciphers used throughout history. Thanks for listening.